All right, well, we have started this whole book, and if you remember, we started with Jill and Eustace, and Jill and Eustace were having some trouble at their school, at least Jill was, and Jill and Eustace gets transported into Narnia, or the world of the spiritual realm, we've, we've learned that it's the spiritual realm, okay, of Narnia, and it is that place where everything, or many things, translate to our world, okay? And then you see as it's, it's a place of learning, it's a place of growth, it's a place uh, where Aslan is king, and that learning and growth uh, is limited in this land for these people. Anyways, for Jill and Eustace and any of the humans that visit it, that learning and growth is a special time uh, when they come from a youth to the, have these grand adventures and they get to some point at which they aren't allowed to come back, okay? So there's a unique time in every Christian's life of that early growth, that spiritual realm that we cross into that is filled with adventures and learning and change and things and the struggles uh, that we have during that time tend to be a lots of fast growth. Okay, that's not age dependent. Okay, and it says once a king or queen in Narnia, always a king or queen in Narnia. But we find that each person, each group of people that go into the realm of Narnia, typically deal with one particular uh, battle or one particular war, one particular fight that they have to go through. Each one is kind of unique and individual as they do it, but there is some major battle, okay, that they are fighting for. And Jill and Eustace are dropped down. Now you remember when Eustace originally came to Narnia, his battle was his selfishness, right? He was all about himself, he was the dragon, he ended up just being, I don't care what anybody thinks, and in the end when he realizes what he really is, a dragon inside. He becomes a dragon outside by his circumstance there and over uh, through a series of things really Aslan comes and takes away those scales and brings him back to be a real boy but he is forever left with the mark inside to change. But that does not mean he is done with his growth. Okay, his growth continues throughout this, and we see little bits and pieces of his temper flare up. Okay, in this, as we walk through the story, we see him with his temper. We see Jill with her impatience and her showing off. Okay, and that's the reason when she first comes into Narnia that she, before she even hits Narnia, that Aslan tells her about these signs and confronts her, she drinks from the streams of water, okay, as you remember, which is saying, I want God, 
right? I want that spiritual thirst in me to be fulfilled and filled up. And that's one of the first steps is saying, yes, I want this, okay? So her journey is a little different, looks a little different as Eustace's journey is a little different. And he comes right in and then he's blown her off the cliff, right? Goes right off to it. And while he is there, she has this encounter with Aslan. Has to learn the signs. Of course, they go in, they miss sign number one, they miss sign number two, they miss sign number three, right? They mess up all the way there. Every bit and piece of what they were supposed to do, they really mess up, which shows the human condition again and again. We struggle, we battle, we don't get it right. We know the right thing to do. We get tired of doing the right thing. Down through our battle, we get nasty about it when somebody confronts us on it. We don't wanna hear about it, okay? And finally, oftentimes in our lives, God gives us a perspective to look back every once in a while, one where we actually get to kind of get a, a higher point of view. We look out and we say, oh, I guess I really didn't do too well with this. I messed up that, I messed up that, I messed up that. And we go back at it and we say, I'm not gonna mess up the next one. And oftentimes we're right in a similar situation and we find ourselves, we missed it. Maybe not the exact same circumstance, but we tend to miss it due to our own uh, mishaps, our own personality, our own uh, selfishness, our own pride, and the big thing that they battle with, and you remember they go past the giants, the first giants are only going to get them by chance, okay? They're throwing the rocks, and they're knowing to kind of avoid the big rocks flying at them, but the second giants, they walk right in the city, and say, I want the warm bed. In fact, they're so upset about it that they can only think of it. They're standing in the middle of the letter of the sign and they have a battle and a fight about, I wanna get into that city and I don't care what happens, okay? And so they end up spending time in the giant city of Harfang and in Harfang, you remember what that stood for? Harfang stood for temptation, right? And the temptation gets them so easily. The thing is about it, it appears like it's some place you really want to get inside. If you remember the walls, there are walls around Harfang, right? Walls around Harfang. Why are the walls around there? It appears like, oh, I want to get in there. It'd be so great if I was in there. I was protected and warm. But really, the walls are so you can't get out. Okay? They'll gladly let you in. But getting out is another story. And that's part of what we see. We met the Lady of the Green Kirtle. We met the Black Knight. And they, of course, led them right to Harfang and said, go there and become a part of the autumn feast, which of course means you will go in and be eaten alive. And that's what I want done. Now, that's what temptation will do to us. Temptation will bring us in, 
bring us to our knees before we knew it, and oftentimes take away our power, okay? Take away power as a Christian. But the crazy thing is, it is not because temptation is more powerful than God. And it's not because temptation is more powerful than our freedom. It is because we willingly go into it. We make a choice. All right, we make a choice. And so as we walk into, into this temptation, we see. Meanwhile, they're on their lookout for Prince Rillian, right? That's what Jill is told to do, is go and free Prince Rillian. Here's the four signs. You're going to do this, right? Go off and you meet a friend. You head towards the ruins of the giants. You do what it says. When you see uh, whatever that sign says with the stone written on the rock, or the message written on the rock, which is written in the rock, of course, and they end up going under me. When they finally realize it, they go and they wander through kind of haplessly and figure out they fall down and they go down and down and down and down and down and fall and fall and fall into a place where they cannot get out on their own. All right? Darkness. And we talked about the plunge into sin plunge into darkness. It's depth. It feels dark. It feels like you don't want to be there. Now, there was a study that they did uh, with a frog. They took a frog and they took a nice big pot of boiling water, heated up that boiling water, nice and hot. They took that frog and it was just a flat pan of boiling water so he could get out and they dropped him in and he jumped right out and he says get me out of here I can't be in here and they took a frog again and they put him in cool water in a pan and ever so slowly they took the temperature of that water just a little bit and the frog as it got warmer adjusted to it as it got warmer adjusted as it got warmer adjusted more and more and more until they boiled him to death that is the way the temptation is when you see it and you look at sin and you look at a choice and you say i'm not going to do that it's easy to stand over here and do that meanwhile you may be slowly slipping into it by a series of choices. Choices you don't even really even recognize as a full choice in that direction. If you choose to put things into your mind, and I am guilty as this as anybody, you choose to put things into your mind, you choose to uh, look at things or think about things that you shouldn't or things that might be uh, a slight temptation to you, you slowly wear away and erode things and you get used to it. And it's a little, well, this isn't so bad. And you get used to it. And this isn't so bad. And you get used to it. And slowly it erodes away. No one ever begins sin and says, I'm going to go be as bad as I could possibly be. 
they start in a little bit and get used to it, and a little bit more and get used to it. And so we see this battle that's happening, and a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, they're tempted, they're tempted, they're tempted, and they end up falling right down into that pit. Now the interesting thing is, even though it seems so dark and deep, Aslan knew they would fall into that pit. He knew before he sent them. He knew they would fail many times. And he did not send them to fail. He sent them to succeed. But even in their failure, he taught them. He changed them. He made them who he wanted them to be. And he, he took those opportunities that he knew they would falter and fail with and he began to keep them and make them grow and teach them about sin and teach them with that dark slide down that in tunnel that they fell down to. Of course, when they get down to the bottom, they are captured by the earthmen that live in these underground caverns uh, and we will find eventually that they are not necessarily there by their total will. All right? But they are busy at work, sometimes doing nothing. All right? They are busy at work, sometimes digging for a greater cause, a worse cause, I should say, uh, by the Lady of the Green Kirtle. Right? She has them doing her bidding, and they just move about and they do it in a subservient way. And they have lost all their will to live, it seems. They continue to just do what they've been told. All right? So they finally meet up with the Black Knight, find out eventually that uh, he is the Black Knight, and they find out about his curse. And his curse is what he's been told is that as he goes to into this fit each night, they strap him in and buckle him into this chair, this silver chair. And he has fits of rage and does all these crazy things. And the, the queen, the lady of the green kirtle, has told him that this is when he is in his most dangerous time. So they strap him in the chair so he doesn't kill anybody else and he doesn't have the chance and it helps him to go back to his sane mind. This is what he's been told. Right? But we find out that the whole opposite is actually true. It's not when he is in his sane mind when he's free. He's actually bound by by things that you cannot see, all right? She has bound him by a spell or by shackles that cannot be seen. It is when he is in the silver chair, when he have his moments of clarity, his moments of, I know actually who I am, all right? And so here is the picture we talked about last week. We talked about that silver chair. representing that depth of sin or actual addiction. Now, 
When you think of addiction, what do you think of? Drugs, okay? And drugs certainly is a part of something that could get you into a place. But you, me, anybody, we can be addicted to almost any sin, okay? It gets to the point where our reality flops on its head and we see things wrongly. We only see what we've been told is the right side and really it's the wrong side. When we get into this spot where we begin to look at the darkness and we begin to look at depths of things which could include actually uh, putting you into despair, okay? Putting you into a place where you're depressed about things all the time, that's actually part of the bondage, okay? Of, and then sin draws you back in and draws you back in and twists your view of what things are, all right? And it seems like you have moments of clarity sometimes and you say, I won't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. But the struggle is real. And the power of that temptation that you've allowed to take parts in your life, whether it be anger or lust or unkindness, whatever it be that we are tempted with, those things that we've allowed to start to take control in our life, okay, disobedience, however it is, we've somehow adjusted to give it room, to let it grow. And we begin to say, well, that's not so bad. We kind of give it, we give it leeway. We give it permission to exist over there in our life. It's easy to let it happen, all right? The world is filled with it. And it begins with choices on our side. It begins that way. And when we've done with the choices, oftentimes, it starts with that little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Okay? Now, finally, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this, but finally, Prince Rillian, in his right mind, when he's strapped in the chair, begs and pleads that they let him out. Okay? Jill, Pole, and Puddleglum, and Eustace are standing there and waiting and watching him in a little fear of what might happen. And they watch him and they watch him struggle. And finally, he says, in the name of the great lion Aslan, let me free. And they knew it was the right thing. But Jill didn't want to do it. And Eustace said, well, it must be just the words of the sign. It's not the real sign. It's the words of the sign. It can't be that. He's justifying anything he has. And Puddleglum says, no, we know what to do. We know exactly what to do. And they cut him free. Even if we die doing this, we have to free this person. And they find out it is Prince Rillian. Prince Rillian then comes with a sword and destroys the silver chair. The silver chair being his bondage, all right? Willingly sit into his bondage. And when he comes to himself within that bondage of a chair, he realizes he's bound and wants free. But soon enough, he slips back into that 
spot where his mind is twisted again. And then he's let out. Because when he's in that upside down mindset, he's the least dangerous of all. As far as the green kirtle, Lady of the Green Kirtle is concerned. Because she has him under her spell. Alright? So it is the very way that we deal with temptation in our lives. So, let's begin right at the place where he's just destroyed the chair. Um, we are going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 also. As we go to the Bible, um, I'm going to read some of the silver chair as we pick up this story here. But we're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, hold our hand in the Bible there. And I'm going to pick up the story just as he's outside of this silver chair. He's just been freed. And we'll read a short excerpt. Two earthmen entered. But instead of advancing into the room, they placed themselves one on each side of the door and bowed deeply. They were followed immediately by the last person whom anyone had expected or wished to see, the Lady of the Green Kirtle, the Queen of the Underland. She stood dead still in the doorway, and they could see her eyes moving as she took in the whole situation. The three strangers... The silver chair destroyed, and the prince free with his sword in hand. She turned very white. But Jill thought it was the sort of whiteness that comes over some people's faces, not when they are frightened, but when they are angry. For a moment, the witch fixed her eyes on the prince, and there was murder in them. Then she seemed to change her mind. Leave us! she said to the two earthmen, and let none disturb us till I call on pain of death. The gnomes padded away obediently, and the witch queen shut and locked the door. How now, my lord prince, she said, has your knightly fit not come upon you? Or is it over so soon? Why stand you here unbound? Who are these aliens? And is it that they, they that who have destroyed the chair, which was your only safety? Prince Rillian shivered as she spoke to him. And no wonder. It is not easy to throw off in half an hour an enchantment which has made one a slave for ten years. Then speaking with a great effort, he said, Madam, there will be no more need of that chair. And you, who have told me a hundred times how deeply you pitied me for the sorceries by which I was bound, will doubtless hear with joy that, you are not, that they are now ended forever. There was, it seems, some small error in your ladyship's way of treating them. These, my true friends, have delivered me. I am now in my right mind, and there are two things I will say to you. First, as for your ladyship's design of putting me at the head of an army of earthmen so that I may break out into the overworld and there by main force make myself king over some nation that never did me wrong, 
murdering their natural lords and holding their throne as a bloody and foreign tyrant. Now that I know myself, I do utterly abhor and renounce it as plain villainy. And second, I am the king's son of Narnia, Rillian, the only child of Caspian X, of that name, who, whom shall call Caspian the seafarer. Therefore, madam, it is my purpose, and it is also my duty, to depart suddenly from your highness's court into my own country. Please it you to grant me and my friends safe conduct and a guide through your dark realm. Right? So he begins that first speech to the queen. She confronts him. She realizes he is free, and she hates it. All right? She hates that fact. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 17. Would you read that, please? Now the Lord is that spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Here's the thing about the difference between what being with the Lord or being with our own flesh and allowing Satan to have his way with us. Satan brings bondage. He appears to have freedom in the beginning, just like the lady of the green kirtle that tempted and wooed that young man in and then kept him bound for 10 years. The same thing goes with Satan. He will tempt and woo you into anything that will get you off track, that will keep you bound from doing the Lord's will. But where the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. This is God's plan for us. Freedom. He does not want us to be bound. He wants us, and he created us, to have freedom and intellectual thought and creativity and being able to uh, create new things and do things. He wanted us to have full freedom to be who we are. But the only way we can do that is to be freed from the shackles that bind us. Those things that take us aside and lock us up all right? And where God's spirit comes into us, freedom will reign. Okay? That is his thing. When he comes in, he sets us free. But just like Rillian, Rillian has been locked in this underworld for 10 years. And in a 30-minute time period, being freed and crushing the... Uh, cutting up the silver chair and destroying that, and now the witch is right in his face. It says he shakes when he says what he says. Gaining a little more confidence, but confronting this queen of the underworld. All right, And we've talked about resisting Satan in things. It is difficult to do, especially if there's been a temptation that we have given into in our lives many times. We've created a habit. We've done to a place where we are bound to it. 
We go to it when we feel sad. We go to it when we're trying to fulfill something in our lives. It's easy to slip back in, all right? When we feel pushed into a corner, when we feel stressed, we easily slip back in, whether that's anger or lust or trying to self-medicate a hurt that we've had. When we do that, we try to fix it ourselves with that. Could be loneliness that brings us to this point of, I'm gonna fall into this temptation. I'm gonna choose to walk into this temptation. These moments of time are critical and they are at the cusp of the battle. They are right where the battle is fought, all right? And so they are the times when you feel shaky, the times when spiritually you don't know exactly what to do and you feel like I will fail and fail and fail and fail again. How can I ever stand? But God, begin with this, as God wants us to have freedom. Now let's go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Verse number 36. John chapter 8, verse number 36. That would be good. Thank you. Some therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Alright? Here's the thing. If God sets you free, you are free, right? No one can find you. It is said that many of the slaves back in America after the Emancipation Proclamation was put out, it was the law of the land. There will be no more slaves. Slaves are freed. It is said that some of them freed, ran, left. And some of them didn't go anywhere. And some of them after they were freed came back because they didn't know what else to do. It is often because of a habit. They've never lived any other way. Because of our habits, we know we're free, but we don't know what to do with it. God set us free, and if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. No one can bind you. And there's power in that statement. But there is strategy in our life that we have to do. We have more to do. The battle is real. We come back and we begin to battle it. Like I said, he was there for 10 years. And so oftentimes with that 10 years, he's gotten used to the way things were. Galatians chapter 5. As we go along here in this and begin to build the understanding Galatians chapter 5 verse number 1 talks about that where we get to this moment in freedom and we don't know what to do with it Galatians chapter 5 verse number 1 please 
therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. All right? Be there and stand. You have freedom, so stand. Stand. And don't get that yoke back on you. Right? If you are an animal that is trained like a horse or an oxen, you put a harness on or a yoke on, you feel the weight, you feel the burden, you pull that all the time, and you get used to it. And when you take it off, you're not quite sure what to do. When you've been free long enough, you start to feel the freedom and say, I know what I'm going to do. My dog, Ulysses, had a collar on him since ever he was a little tiny puppy. And we'd run him around and play with him. Sometimes he'd be on a leash. He wasn't very good on a leash at all. And he'd pull and push and do all this sort of stuff. And every once in a while, he'd twist all up and yank his collar right off the top of his head. Kind of had a pointed, weird head. Right? So off it would come right off of his head, and as soon as the collar was off, he would sit down, nervous, because he didn't know what that felt like, and he knew something was wrong, and he shouldn't be like this. Even though some dogs who have been free without a collar forever would run right? as soon as they got it, right? But he had been in it his whole entire life, and so it was hard for him not to feel like something's missing. And yet it was a collar. It bound him. I mean, it didn't choke him or anything, but it bound him. It would hold him back when I pulled on the leash because he'd run and try to go after people or try to do whatever. I'd hold him back. But as soon as that collar slipped off, he'd sit right down. Like, I know something's wrong. Somehow you've got to fix this because it doesn't feel right. All right? And... We need to know what it is like for freedom, feel what it is like, and learn to say, we're not putting that back on. Because God has created me to be free. I'm going to stand in my liberty. I will not give in to this yoke again. I will not put this back willingly on. Prince Rillian, every day, when he is freed from the chair, puts it willingly back on. If you talk about a person who uses drugs, many times in their life they have regrets. They feel sad and sorrowful about what they've done, but they go back to it because it's comforting in some way. It's a yoke they've put on, and they almost don't know what to do when they're sober, when their mind is free from it because they feel guilt, and that's all they feel. So when they feel guilt about what they've just done, the best way they can think of and to fix the guilt, right? When they get to that guilt, how do they fix it? They got to figure out how to medicate so I don't feel bad. Well, how do I medicate? I'm going to put myself in that stupor again and give myself some sort of drug, all right? I'm going to take it again and then I don't feel bad, all right? But it's a cycle. Right? The guilt comes, and you take a drug to medicate. And I'm using the word medicate in a very generic way, and then the guilt comes again. 
and you take a drug to medicate. That works with many sins. Lust is one of those sins where it's a natural drug. All right? Someone who struggles with looking at things online that they shouldn't look at. There's a reason that first attracted them. There's a God-given reason, right? Man is made to be attracted to woman. And oftentimes it is man that struggles with this. Not as much women, although there are women who do. But when man then says, hey, I like the feel of what that says when I look at this, what that does to my mind, it gives me dopamine, which is a natural internal uh, chemical, which is meant, which God meant to have when you are in love with a person, when you are married to that person, he's giving you that special connection, and there's actual chemical connections that happen within a marriage, and that's what God intended, is within this marriage you create this, all right? That's a good feeling, and he wants to give you that good feeling. Unfortunately, like anything, you can take that chemical connection Trick your brain and say, this feels good. I can look at this picture. And it does the same thing in my mind. It gives me a shot of dopamine. And when I look at that picture, it gives me a shot of dopamine. My mind's telling me, ooh, that feels good. I like that. Kind of a euphoria of sorts. But then once that euphoria is over, you feel guilty. And so what do you do when you feel guilty, you feel bad about yourself, and you say, i got to figure out a way to make myself not feel bad again. And the cycle goes on, and it makes a bondage. And you continue to do it again and again and again. And you get moments of clarity, like in any sin, where you say, I'm not going to do that anymore. Right? I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to let this sin overpower me in my life. And oftentimes we see it and we go, well, drugs is one thing, and smoking might be one thing, alcohol might be one thing, something that it creates a habit. But anybody can have a habit of anything. Okay? Anything can be a habit that can be formed in such a way where they might tear somebody down and use their anger and their nasty words to tear somebody down and it makes them feel a little bit better about themselves. And they use that and somebody says, wow, they're, they're nasty today. Or they're always nasty every time we talk to them. All right? They might be using that to try to overcome some feeling they have about themselves. All the wrong approach. Whether it's the drugs, or it's trying to cover up with alcohol, or it's trying to cover it up with lust, or it's trying to cover it up with anger, or trying to cover it up with anything. That cycle is difficult to break. And it starts, and it goes, and it starts, and it goes, and it starts, and it self-perpetuates. Right? That's what it does. It self-perpetuates again and again and again. So we put the yoke back on because we don't know how to fix the problem. And we think, we're just going to do it ourselves. That's the way I feel better. And I can instantly feel better for a moment, for an hour, for a day, for a week. And then it's back again. And so I cycle again and again and again. But then I need more 
deeper. More drugs, more lust, deeper things. I need to get more out of it, okay? And so people spin out of control into a depth of a place where they have no freedom or they feel they have no freedom. This can be people, anybody. Even a person who loves God can struggle greatly with this. And so when it gets into their lives for years where they've just sort of let it be, it is very, very difficult, almost nearly impossible, except with God, nothing is impossible. So the battle is real. The battle is between not flesh and blood, right? But it says powers and principalities, spiritual darkness. We fight against spiritual darkness because who wants us to fall and fail? Just like the lady of the green kirtle wants him, she angers him, like angers her that Rillian is free. And so you're going to see what she does to lull them back. Because that's all she had to do in the beginning was tempt him and lull him in. And so she's going to try again. Battle's not over. The battle has just begun. He has cut the silver chair, but he's got much more to go. All right. So something you should know, this is a side note, and I guess we never covered this totally, uh, but in James it talks about temptation and how it works. Temptation works in a certain way. It's got sort of, a, not a cycle necessarily, but a process, okay? James Chapter 1, verse number 14, I'll read it. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust, or the thing I want right now. That's my lust, right? And enticed. Ooh, that's kind of nice, right? Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And so here we have the beginning of our cycle. The beginning of our process is lust. That says, I want it now. I want to feel good uh, about myself. I desire that and I'm not going to wait for it. Give it to me now. I want the feeling of what that gives me. Okay? I want to be freed from this right now. I want to be, uh, so the only way I know is to medicate myself with some sin. Okay? That gives me the moment of pleasure, but then brings me a whole backside of guilt. Right? So lust says, give it to me now. It entices me and says, ooh, that's nice. Lust is not, at that moment, is that decision of sin. Saying, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. And you right here can say, nope, or you can say, yep, I'm doing it. This is no, this is yes. When you say yes, you sin. And sin then you've come down to sin brings death. Okay? There is no other end to death. When you say no at that point of lust saying, I want it, I want it, I want it, you say, nope, I don't want to. It doesn't give birth. When you say no, it doesn't give birth. When you say yes, go ahead and do it, whatever makes me feel good, it conceives just like 
creating something new. Conceive of an idea, it brings about something brand new, and that brand new thing is sin. It says, yes, I will, and it, and it gives birth to sin. And that's your next thing, and then you're down uh, as the consequence of sin is death. So that's the natural progression of sin. All right. So when you start it, there's no way to stop it except to go to God for forgiveness and say, I'm not going to do it. But then we struggle. And this is what the book is about, is the struggle itself. So what do we do with the struggle? And that's my big question. Reality says, I falter and I fail. I cannot do this on my own. I cannot be a Christian in my own power. So how do I do it? Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse number 45. Alright, how are you going to walk freely? You're going to seek, search, seek God's precepts or God's word. God's words, I'll say. Not just in general, uh, yeah, I got the Bible. Look for God's words. Daily, look for God's words. What is it going to mean to you? You will have to seek it. And if you struggle, you have to seek God's words. That's how you're going to walk in freedom. There will be no freedom without God's words because God's spirit is in his words. And we've said where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. God is there, right? His spirit is there. So his spirit is, this is the living word of God, right? And his spirit is in God's words. You will find that he will help you if you are consistent about reading, about seeking. And seeking is hard to do every day. It means you have to make a habit of it. Okay, and so you make a habit, and you do it, and whether it's, everyone's habits are different. Some people, it can be, when I do this, I'm going to do, going to read. When I get up in the morning, first thing I'm doing is read. I'm going to listen to it on the car ride uh, somewhere. I am going to put it in my headphones and hear it as Bibles everywhere now. You can get God's word more readily than you ever could at any point in history today. It is easier to get your hands on today, right where we are now. Whether you read it, whether you listen to it, however it is, seek God's words. And if you will seek it, not just, well, I turned it on, I thought about something else the whole, other, the whole time. That'll be a struggle when you do it. But if you can put it in and allow it to sink in, or read and allow it to sink in, and consistency with it, will bring you to more and more obedience, more and more freedom, okay? 
And the obedience brings you into a place where you begin to break the guilt cycle and the falling into it cycle and the guilt cycle and falling into it cycle and the guilt cycle and falling into it cycle. And it's obnoxious because it happens again and again and again. All right? You break that in pieces because you learn that you have been freed and forgiven if you ask. And then you've got to have the faith to believe it. Because that guilt is going to take back over and say, but he couldn't forgive me, for, not for this one. I've done it too many times. I've fallen too many times. God can't forgive me for this one. And that's the guilt that we feel. But in reality, he is telling you, nothing can separate you from the love of God. I will forgive you any sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Except if you do it too many times. He never said that. He said, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Every time he's consistent. It is we who falter. <laughs> it's us every time. He is there, he is waiting, he wants it. When Peter said to Jesus, and I often think about this, when Peter said to him, should we forgive someone seven times? He thought he was being generous. Should we forgive somebody? If they do the same thing to us seven times, would we forgive it seven times? Because that's a lot. Peter says, and Jesus says, no, 70 times seven, which meant way more than you're ever going to be able to count. That's the way I want you to forgive others, which means that's the way God forgives us. If we but ask, he forgives us, right? And so he's faithful in that because he said he would. And so when we believe it and we start to understand it and we begin to seek in his word freedom, we will find verses of forgiveness that will speak to us again and again and again. And we will, he will say, you come back, wandering child. You come back that you are the uh, prodigal son. Come back. I will take you back. You wasted it all, but I will take you back because I love you because you're my son. And he does it time and time again. And every time he does that, he teaches us to begin to break that cycle and say, if you have guilt, come to me. Don't try to fill it with something else. Come to me. I will help you with your guilt. Guilt is one of the most powerful things ever. It is a powerful thing to bind us. Guilt is one of the biggest things for bondage. Everybody feels guilty at some point. And that puts us into a place where we say, I'm not worthy of anything. I can't do anything. I should just forget this whole thing. And what does Satan want you to do? Say that very same thing. I'm not worthy. I should just forget it. I'm a lost cause. And Jesus says, no, you're not. You're my son. You come back to me every time. You are the prodigal son, but you can come back. And that is God's word. And that's why we read it and read it and read it because we're so imprinted with guilt in our lives that we need to understand that God does not bind us with that guilt. He's not waiting over top of us, waiting for us to falter with his big fist to say, gotcha. He's not that God. He has consequences for things, 
that everything he does is in love. All right? And you will find that throughout the Old and New Testament. You will find some stories where there are consequences for things. But when you deeply look and understand and read into those stories, you will find that with that comes strokes of mercy, strokes of forgiveness that are beyond measure. All right? When you begin to understand what he's really doing. There's a bigger picture of what he's really doing. All right? So when we see this struggle, when we see this, we've got to know that God has set us free. And where we're going to get it is the word of God. All right, back to the book of James, because in the book of James, in the first chapter, it gives us one more verse about this. Book of James, first chapter, verse number 25. I'll read that. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So here it is. You're going to look into the perfect law of liberty, the law of liberty, which is God's words that bring freedom because of the Spirit, you're going to look into it and do what next? Verse number 25, what does it say? You're going to not forget. That's what it is. Not forget. Not forget. When you do that, when you keep putting it in your head again and again and again and again and again and understand where God's coming from and you don't forget it, which means you go out into life and you still can say, I'm free. I don't have to live this way. I don't, you don't have control over me anymore. You can't take control over me anymore, sin. You can't have it. You've been trying to manipulate me into guilt again and again and again to get me to falter, get me to fail. You've been trying to make me feel bored and angry and tired and lonely and hungry and guilty about everything, and I'm not going to let you have it anymore. Because you can begin to take that from God. That's the type of attitude we get from God. You can't have me. You can't have me, sin. Satan, I'm not yours anymore. You cannot have me. And so we learn to begin to fight a spiritual battle. And it's real and it's difficult and it's hard. All right? And in 2 Corinthians, we're not going to turn there, but in 2 Corinthians it talks about spiritual weapons that we have spiritual weapons the weapons are not those things of the world okay the world is going to offer you 15 ways to work on your anger and 17 quick steps to fix your lust and they're going to work on 33 different ways to break your drug habit but the real battle and anybody who has ever really fought the battle and won for any long length of time comes down to a spiritual battle. And I know from people that I have known who have attended Alcoholics Anonymous, who have dealt with addiction of 
alcohol abuse, they begin the first time to talk about that higher power. That's spiritual. That's giving you someone. You've got to give this over to someone because you can't control it. And when you begin to give it over to God, which is really what they're beginning to talk about, you give it over to him. Let him do it. You begin to see this fight is not just physical addiction. This is far beyond and far deeper. The silver chair that holds this guy is something much more sinister than just a physical chair. Much more sinister. Right? There is bondage involved in that silver chair that is deeper than just a simple physical bond. Right? And that's the battle. And if he can get Christians, if Satan can get a Christian to stay in this guilty complex for a decade, two decades, three decades in his life, her life, he can take away many of the joys and the opportunities and the power that God could have done. Now, if that person steps out and allows God and battles uh, for God to be in their life and begins to not forget about those things, yes, God can redeem and God can do a million things and God understands just like just like Jill and Eustace says, they miss the sign and miss the sign and miss the sign and yet God still brings them right to where they need to be, right? They miss it and miss it and miss it and we so often do. But there's so much that God wants for us. Satan would just have us go to, go to our grave. Go ahead, just let it be. Let it go and take you till you're completely gone. Let it take you out of the picture, all right? And it can if we allow these things to do it, sometimes we've seen in people's lives where these types of things get us and hold us and bind us so tight that it takes us to a physical end. All right? Takes us to a physical end, which is Satan says, got it. Just what I wanted. I took that power out of that person. I didn't want him to accomplish anything for the Lord and so I was going to distract him and take him away right and so the battle is real for our lives real battle now here's the interesting thing uh, in Proverbs I'll read this verse Proverbs chapter 21 verse number 31 this is what is said the horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. You can go and put your part in in this battle, which might be putting in guardrails in our lives so we're not running off the road, right? Putting in protection in our lives, building our lives in such a way we're far away from sin, we walk away from sin, we have the habits of those things. That's us getting our horse ready for war, right? But God is going to protect us. The horse is not our savior. God is the savior in this. You can prepare the horse for battle, and you can get ready to get on it. But if only the horse goes with you to battle, you're not going to win. If you go with the Lord, you may not even need a horse. 
right? But God, the, the victory is with God. And that's something we need to know. All right, back to the book here. Now the witch said nothing at all, but moved gently across the room, always keeping her face and eyes very steadily toward the prince. When she had come to a little ark set in the wall, not far from the fireplace, she opened it and took out first a handful of green powder. This she threw on the fire. It did not blaze much, but a very sweet and drowsy smell came from it. And all through the conversation which followed, that smell grew stronger and filled the room and made it harder to think. Secondly, she took out a musical instrument rather like a mandolin. She began to play it with her fingers, a steady, monotonous thrumming that didn't, you didn't notice after a few minutes, but the less you noticed it, the more it got into your brain and your blood. This also made it hard to think, and after she thumbed for a time and the sweet smell was now strong, she began speaking in a sweet and quiet voice. Narnia? She said, Narnia, I have often heard your lordship utter that name in your ravings. Dear prince, you are very sick. There is no land called Narnia. Yes, there is, though, ma'am, said Puddleglam. You see, I happen to live there all my life. Indeed, said the witch. Tell me, I pray you, where that country is. Up there, said Puddleglam, stoutly pointing overhead. I... I don't know exactly where. How? said the queen with a kind, soft, musical laugh. Is there a country up among the stones and the mortar on the roof? No, said Puddleglum, struggling a little to get his breath. It's in the overworld. And what or where, pray, is this? How do you call it? Overworld? Oh, don't be so silly, said Scrub, who was fighting hard against the enchantment of the sweet smell and the thump thrumming, as if you didn't know. It's up above, up, up where you can see the sky and the sun and the stars. Why, you've been there yourself. We met you there. I cry you mercy, little brother, laughed the witch. You couldn't have heard a lovelier laugh. I have no memory of that meeting. But we often meet our friends in strange places when we dream. And unless all dream alike, you must not ask them to remember it. Madam, said the prince sternly, I have already told your grace that I am the king's son of Narnia. And shall be, dear friend, said the witch in a soothing voice, as if he, she was humoring a king, a child. Shall be a king of many imagined lands in thy fancies. So her goal is to take and twist their words, to twist their thoughts, to twist their world, and say, you're not really thinking of anything real. If she can take away reality, if she could take away that reality to him, or make them maybe think, well, maybe that's not really real, then everything becomes more real that's right in front of you. This is the very same strategy often used in our world with Satan. If he can make God and the spiritual things of this life, which are the most real things of all, 
seem not very real because God's so far away. And have you ever seen him? And how do you know he's real? How can you really know that God is some real thing? How can you know? And as she, he begins to put doubts into your mind about God himself and who he really is and what his real intentions are, she can twist or he can twist around the things that we see and the way we look at things, right? So that is often what is happening there. It's all a dream. This is reality. And that's where the world here has accepted this and said, spiritual things, they're so far away. Right here on this physical earth, I can touch things and do things. This is the real reality. Now, I'm not saying this is not a real place. But what I am saying is, this place is a short-lived place with a short-lived life. And the real life beyond, which is God in heaven, or our spiritual life beyond, is much larger and much bigger. And if we would accept God and move towards God, we would see how real that is and how the world fades away in its importance. But instead, we get wrapped up with all these things in this world and we begin not to be able to see clearly or remember clearly how real God is, how our interactions with him and the things we do in our life is more, more real than anything else we do. Okay? So when we see those things and we begin to see and, and are sort of taken away from reality, we question it, which is a strategy. Now, it is in 1 John, we'll look at one more verse here, 1 John chapter 11. 1 John chapter 11, verse number 14, it talks about Satan. Sorry, that's not right. Uh. Let me see if I have the right. I obviously wrote down the wrong verse here. Well, anyways, I have the wrong verse down here, but uh, it talks about Satan being an angel of light. Okay? Satan is an angel of light, and he has, he has transformed himself, oftentimes, to look very real and very convincing that he is most important. Okay? And he has tricked people. Okay? Because he appears to be something beautiful, something good, something wonderful. And really behind it, his only goal is lying and death and murder and hatred. He has those things behind him, okay? That's what he wants. He is selfish to the core, 
as a being, and he, but he has, a, he has made himself appear as an angel of light. Okay? So, it is often a twisting of the way Satan shows uh, up in our lives. Now, those moments of temptation have come, and the witch finally finishes up. There was never, they, they have a whole conversation about a son. There never was a son, said the witch. No, there never was a son, said the prince and the marsh wiggle and the children. So he, they're finally following her. They've heard enough of the thumb, thumb, thumb music and the sweet smell and their brains are not clear in thinking. They're just filled with mush. And they are starting to go along with her. For the last few minutes, Jill had been feeling that there was something she must remember at all costs, and now she did. But it was dreadfully hard to say. She felt as if huge weights were laid on her lips, at last with an effort that seemed to take all of the good out of her. She said, there's Aslan. Aslan? said the, the witch, quickening ever so slightly the pace of her thrumming. What a pretty name. What does it mean? He is the great lion who called us out of our own world, said Scrub, and sent us into this to find Prince Rillian. What is a lion? asked the witch. Oh, hang it all, said Scrub. Don't you know? How can we describe it to her? Have you ever seen a cat? Surely, said the queen, I love cats. Well, a lion is a little bit like a cat, only a little bit, mind you, like a huge cat with a mane. At least, it's not like a horse's mane, you know. It's more like a judge's wig, and it's yellow and terror, terrifically strong. The witch shook her head. I see, she said, that we should do no better with your lion, as you call it, than we did with your son. You have seen lamps, so you imagined a bigger and better lamp and called it the sun. You have seen cats, and now you want a bigger and better cat, and... It, and it's to be called a lion. Well, tis a pretty make-believe, though to say truth, it would suit you all better if you were younger. And look how you put nothing into your make-believe without copying it from the real world, this world of mine, which is the only world. But even you, children, are too old for such play. As for you, my lord prince, thou art a man full of full-grown fie on you, and are not you ashamed of such toys? Come on, all of you. Put away these childish tricks. I have work for all of you in the real world. There's no Narnia, no overworld, no sky, no sun, no Aslan, and now to bed all, and let us begin a wiser life tomorrow. But first to bed, sleep, deep sleep, soft pillows, sleep without foolish dreams. The prince and the two children were standing there with their heads hung down and their cheeks flushed and their eyes half closed and the strength all gone from them. The enchantment was almost complete. But Puddleglum, desperately gathering all his strength, walked over to the fire and then he did a very brave thing. He knew it wouldn't hurt him quite as much as it would hurt a human for his feet, which were bare, were webbed and hard and cold-blooded like a duck's. But he knew it would hurt him badly enough. And so it did. With his bare feet, he stamped on the fire, grinding a large part of it into ashes on the flat earth. And three things happened at once. First, the sweet smell grew much less. For though the whole fire had not been put out, it was a good deal bit of it. Remained smelled very much like burnt marsh wiggle. 
which is an enchanting smell. This instantly made everyone's brain far clearer. The prince and the children held up their heads, opened their eyes. Secondly, the witch, in a loud, terrible voice, utterly different from the sweet tone she'd been using up to now, called out, What are you doing? Dare to touch my fire again, mud filth! I'll turn your blood to fire inside your veins! Thirdly, the pain itself made Puddle Glum's head for a moment perfectly clear, and he knew exactly what he really thought. There is nothing like good shock of pain for dissolving certain kinds of magic. One word, ma'am, he said, coming back from the fire, limping because of the pain. One word! All you've been saying is quite right. I shouldn't wonder. I'm a chap who's always liked the worst and then put the best face on it. And so Puddle Glum begins to tell the story, and he says, maybe all these things aren't real. But if they aren't real, then I think the pretend world that we all are imagining is much better than this real world. So that's where we should be. And that's what we should think about. And once he did that, she came right at them she realized she was beat because they chose to say, I don't care what it is. I'd rather have this world that you call imaginary be the world we worship and think about and, and become a part of rather than your old world any day. Because what does your world offer? Nothing. It's the same way here. What does this world offer? If we look just to this world for all our strength and all our fulfillment and all the things we need and want, we will be sorely disappointed. But if we look to God and continue to go back to Him, as they looked and said, look at Aslan and Narnia, they're the things that we want. We can say, Jesus Christ and heaven, that's what I want. I'm going to live like those are more real than anything else. And they are. Now, the witch then, of course, then became her real self, and she slithered into a big snake, and there was the real final battle, and Prince Rillian killed that snake. And then, at that point, he was free, all right? Free from that curse. And so we see, though that's not the end of the book, we will continue on another time, but we will see that the pain sometimes that life brings often brings us back to the point of reality. Just like Puddleglum taking his foot and stomping out the fire so that he knew that was real, the pain was real. Oftentimes hard things in our life Loss and sickness and hardships and things that come in our life draw us nearer to God because that's when things are very real. When everything's sort of floating on music and smelly things, not a big deal. But once the reality of hardship comes in our life, that's the, that's the real thing. And it brings clarity to our life and our thoughts about God. And we begin to think, in a more realistic way. If I lose someone I love and this world was all that there was, then what a sad and miserable place. Why would we do any of it? 
But if there is something more and God is real, then it brings a new chapter and an ability to trust God to say, I want to be there with that person too. I want to be with you. And begin to see something bigger and different in our life. And so we see Padablam, who was the wet blanket all along, ends up being the guy who says, this pain is good for me. It will bring clarity to my mind. Hard way to think, but it's a true way to think about things. It is not a bad thing. So Puddleglum saves the day and gets them all out of the place where they're enchanted to the place where, where they all know reality and they're back on and they're with defeat in moments. We will pick up next time. Thank you very much.